Hi everyone, welcome to Ortho Radio. I'm Nick Bertha, I'm one of the second year residents here at Penn State Hershey. I'm here today with Dr. Mark Mason. Uh, we're here to talk a little bit about new developments in total knee arthroplasty. Dr. Mason's been in practice for over 20 years and he has a wealth of knowledge and experience in uh, knee arthroplasty. Thanks for being with, with us here today, Dr. Mason. Thanks, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start today, kind of talk about some of the new things that we have. One of the big developing things lately has been the kinematic knee alignment. In the past, a lot of knee replacements have been done by realigning the mechanical axis of the femur and the tibia, but there's this new draw to the kinematic axes of the knee. Dr. Mason, can you kind of explain to us what exactly is the new difference between the mechanical axis and the kinematic axis? Yeah, so it's when you look at the when you look at the knee joint, I mean it's it, we typically think of that as a hinge joint. Uh, we like to think like things to be simple and so we think of it as a hinge as a hinge joint. And historically as we have gone about reconstructing those, the the designs that we've used have been modeled after a hinge. It's not connected together like a hinge, but in terms of the range of motion, the axes that we look at, uh, we think of it as sort of a simple hinge. But the knee motion itself is actually more complex than that. There's some rotational component to that, and it's not in the normal setting 100% lined up like a hinge would be. And so there is some thought here to, um, to designs or techniques that more accurately reproduce the anatomic alignment of the native knee joint. So historically, we would um, put this joint line or the hinge, the axis of the hinge perpendicular to the long axis of the leg or the weight-bearing axis of the leg, which means it's essentially parallel to the floor. And all of the cutting jigs and every, all the alignment guides and things that we do to line that up are designed with that in mind. But we know that uh, knee replacement is not a 100% perfect procedure. There are patients who end up unhappy for whatever reason. There's a variety of things that can cause complications. Yeah. And there are a subset of patients out there who have a painful knee replacement, and we don't really know why. Mm-hmm. And one of the thoughts is maybe you know, there are certain patients who just don't do really well with that standard hinge-based alignment, and they would do better with a more anatomic alignment. The kinematic alignment is based just on that. It, it puts the uh, implants just off a little bit from the, from the normal perpendicular axes that we look at, uh, hopefully creates a better anatomic alignment, a better functional range of motion for people. Okay. How does this differ from the original anatomic axis uh, knee arthroplasties that were done back in the 70s and 80s? And I know there were a lot of complications with those, especially with wear. What is the differential between the anatomic realignment and the kinematic realignment? As overall, they sound somewhat similar. So I think relative to wear probably has more to do with the materials themselves. And we've certainly seen a lot of improvement in polyethylene technology over time. So the wear probably has more to do with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may also be related to whether you preserve the posterior cruciate ligament or save the posterior cruciate ligament. Those uh, have design characteristics that that differ between each other, but they're still lined up so that the actual rotating axis of the knee is parallel to the floor with traditional alignment. The normal anatomic knee, that that axis is maybe three or four degrees off parallel to the floor. We have worried historically that 
the fixation, the cemented fixation we use to put uh, these knee implants in doesn't hold up to shear forces very well. Sure. And so if you have the, they were thinking you would last longer if you left it completely parallel to the floor, you wouldn't generate any shear forces okay. on the um, on the cement bone interface. And and then they were worried that if you tip it into, into that three or four degrees of angle off of that, that alignment standard, you would then see shear forces in the cement and you'd see early failure. Mm-hmm. And there is data to suggest that knees that are put in in too much angle will uh, historically uh, seem to have higher failure rates. Okay. So this is kind of a new way of kind of going back to some former ideas of getting more back to the anatomic version, just with new and improved pieces and parts. Well, potentially. I mean, you're still, you still have this shear force issue that you have to deal with. And mm-hmm. so there is a lot of, there still is a fair bit of disagreement or two camps at least out there. There are some people who tend to think that the anatomic, or the anatomic alignment, you don't have to worry so much about the shear forces now. There are others who think that uh, it's still going to be a big deal and we're going to see, see higher failure rates if these things are put in out of alignment. Sure. Do you think that the kinematic alignment then, it sounds like maybe something that some patients may potentially benefit from if you have that patient population that obviously you can't really predict that doesn't do great after a total knee. Do you think maybe this potentially could be a solution? Well, uh, it's certainly intriguing to think about that from a theoretical standpoint. The devil's really in the details and whether the data shows true outcomes. And so that's where the controversy lies. And so when you look at the research that's being done in this area, you see that these various different ways of putting these things in, we tend to be good at making the x-rays look the way we want the x-rays to look. It doesn't always correlate with improved patient outcomes, and so the data really has not been, at least um, the early data, has not been super supportive of the concept that you get much better outcomes with this anatomic alignment. There are some authors who feel like they're, they have shown some difference there, but there's been a number of authors who have really shown no difference. Sure. I don't know that we really necessarily know which variables to look at for sure. And so as these studies grow and develop, you know, we may learn things here that, that give us a better understanding so that it improves further in the future. Sure. Do you know how long some of these studies have looked out for how far patients have had these knees in? Are we talking only one to two years for these follow-up studies? Uh, I mean, I think, there's, I think there are studies that, that are out there that maybe in the five to ten year range at this point. I can't, I can't quote you a reference right off the top of my head sure. uh, for that. We know that the traditional, the traditional way of putting in, those, those studies go back 20 years, 20 year follow up and, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. And, that's, and really with joint replacement, you almost have to have that 20 year follow up to really make a conclusion as to, as to what's better. But again, it's, it's what variable you're looking at. So if you're looking at, at uh, implant loosening rates, you know, 20 years is, is a more appropriate follow-up. If you're looking at patient satisfaction, you know, maybe two years is enough. If uh, you see a, a smaller percentage of people that are having pain, unexplained pain, after their kinematically aligned knee compared to the non-kinematically aligned knee, maybe there's something there. We haven't seen that come out of the data yet. We haven't seen that kinematic alignment seems to lower the percentage of unsatisfied patients. Okay. Well, (laughs) it'll be interesting to see as the studies continue to kind of uh, trickle in over time to see if there really starts to be any substantial changes, either in the short-term, mid-term, or long-term follow-ups over the course of time. When kinematic knees are done, do they use the same type of jigs, or do you find that 
a lot of these uh, folks are doing more so robotic-assisted kind of devices or computer-assisted surgery kind of mechanisms. Well, it's interesting you bring up robotics because I think that's a whole separate area of technology unto, unto itself. I think it certainly has use in kinematic alignment. You can use standard instrumentation to do kinematic alignment. There's nothing magic about that. The question really lies in the accuracy of how these cuts are made and relative to anatomic variance and things like that, and how much variance is relevant, right? And so we may see that uh, that three or four degrees here or there doesn't make any difference at all, mm -hmm. or a half a degree might make a huge difference. We just don't know. Yeah, and potentially we could be putting a lot of money into doing these things to make a small degree of difference and not actually have any real yeah. statistical or clinical outcome from that. So I think the real power in robotics in today's world, so speaking today, the real power of robotics lies in helping us define these variables better. And so with the robotics being able to give us better precision about how we put the implants in, at this stage, it doesn't necessarily translate to better outcomes because we don't know which variables we're looking at. But with robotics, we can record these variables and things with much greater detail. And as we start to create a big database with, robotic, with the robotics the way they are, and as the robotics evolve, I think we're going to learn things that we haven't thought of before. Uh, and we may start to see better outcomes with the robotics down the road. Again, the data doesn't suggest that the robotics are making a difference right now. Mm -hmm. But we're still in the early stages of this. We're still collecting data. And yeah. once, we get, once we get more data, the robots, I think, can collect more accurate data, or more precise data anyways, that may show us variables that we didn't recognize before. So maybe not seeing anything yet, but maybe there's something that we can actually learn from, from doing all of this new stuff. Yeah. So it's possible that you know, we're doing robotic needs now. We don't see a difference. But that robotic technology, I would think, is going to evolve to the point where, you know, five, ten years down the road, we are now doing these differently because of what we learned with the robotic technology. I think that's a really good point. Do you think at the current point in time that there's a specific patient population or a specific deformity that you would say that doing robotics is more beneficial than trying to do some sort of, you know, typical classic mechanical alignments just with your typical cutting jigs? Well, theoretically, there are some advantages to robotics from a preoperative planning standpoint. But again, if you don't know which variables you're trying to manipulate, with the robotics, you can manipulate any variable you want. We just aren't entirely sure what the most important variables are just yet. So sure. there are advantages in, in you know, these complex deformities and, and those sorts of things. But on the other hand, the data is only good as what you put, what you put in. Sure. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you can plan this out impeccably and put the cuts right where you want and still end up with a knee that doesn't work very well because you didn't really know what it was you were trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, again, I think we're going to learn a lot about this, and I think there's a lot of potential advantage in robotics for these complex deformities. We're still we're still looking for the for all the information so we know exactly best how to use it. Well, hopefully someday we'll be able to characterize what these variables are that can make using robotics more useful for certain patient populations. I know there's a lot of different systems out there. I, I know they talk about some of the more computer-assisted surgery kind of devices. Can you kind of tell us a little bit what is the difference between that and kind of some of the classic robotic and, and kind of the differences yeah. between those two kind of camps? Of well, I think the classic 
you know, when you think of a robot, the first thing you think of is, is you know, what you've seen in science fiction movies where, this, and, and you see to a certain extent on the assembly lines in Detroit. Yeah. You yeah. know, these little <laughs> arms stick out and they zap something and they put bolts in and they're moving around and, and doing the procedure. And there are surgical robots that do that. And those were kind of the first sorts of robots that came out was let's figure out how to get the robot to do the cut. And now you see things changing a little bit where you have, it's more robotic assisted where the, uh, you can use, these instruments are designed to provide you real-time feedback while you're using them. You can watch in the screen, the surgeon's hand is doing the surgery, but with real-time feedback from the robot. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a, is a fairly interesting concept. And, you know, in theory, potentially has some benefits over the fixed robotic arm. In, in certain circumstances. Yeah, sure. The other thing to, it's sort of a mix of the concept of computer navigation, which was also researched you know, a number of years ago, where you basically find reference points on the, on the patient, and then the instruments are sort of tracked in real time, sort of like virtual reality, and you watch it on the screen to see where your implants are going. You still are doing what you want to do, but you can see in, with better precision where you're putting the instruments. Sure, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a neat kind of way that they have yeah. it. I've seen some of those systems in the past with kind of the arrays that yeah. kind of just stick exactly. in there. And so it's, it seems to me what we're seeing is this evolution in technology. You know, computer navigation as a standalone didn't, off, didn't seem to offer a lot of benefit. The standalone robotic arm you know, had some limitations. Now you're seeing these two technologies meld, meld together, try to get the best of each one to go together. And, and, and I think we've yet to see, we're going to see more evolution as we move forward because I don't think we have found the ideal situation yet. It'll be really neat to see when they're actually able to get the technologies to meld together to create something uh, that may be highly beneficial. One of the other big things that's talked about when we see computer-assisted surgeries is the cost of the robotics you know, how does that kind of play into the decision-making factor of whether you want to use this? And what are these costs like uh, for both the hospital and patients? Oh, well, that's a, wow, that's a big question because <laughs> <laughs> that opens a whole can of worms. <laughs> so the, um, the cost, it's, it's interesting because in our current health system, you know, not all the players are aligned in terms of what's important for cost, right? Sure. The patient wants, you know, the best possible thing. If you're a patient, you want, you know, I don't care how much it costs. I want the best outcome. Mm-hmm. And I have insurance for that. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. That's why people get insurance because they want to be able to get the best thing. The hospital systems, on the other hand, are really forced because the insurers are limiting how much they'll pay. And so the hospitals are really focused on saving money, mm-hmm. right? They want to spend much. They certainly want quality. They want good outcomes as well, but they need it at a less cost. There's a lot of moving parts in that equation between the various players. And so trying to decide, you know, what, how much cost is relevant. Yeah. You know, I think that, that ultimately it boils down to if you can demonstrate with something that the amount of additional expense you are incurring is worth what you get. Yeah. In other words, it gives enough of an improvement in the outcomes that it's worth doing it. Nobody argues with spending the extra amount of money. The problem is a lot of times what we see here with, with a lot of these studies show that the cost is increased, but the outcomes aren't improved. Sure, yeah. And in that situation, it's hard to justify spending more money, even though you know, it's cool and it's trendy and, and everybody's doing it. If you're just spending more money and not getting better outcomes, then you have a problem. And it's hard for patients navigating the system to, to see that. They yeah. think if, if I as a surgeon am just trying I'm trying to save money, you know, 
they immediately assume that I'm trying to do it at their expense. Sure, yeah, or absolutely. the hospital for that, and so yeah. it, it puts the surgeon in a really difficult situation. We want out. We want you know best outcomes we can for our patients. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, it's not coming out of my pocket the cost either. You know, from the insurance standpoint, sure. it's coming out of the insurance company. But mm-hmm. the insurance companies will often dictate we will or won't pay for this or or those sorts of things, and I have to navigate that back and forth. You know, I want to do the best thing I can for my patient. On the other hand, you know, if I break the system with cost, then I can't help anybody. Definitely. There's no point in increasing costs if we're not going to see better outcomes for patients. Uh, but we need to come up with the way to optimize both. It's, it's, uh, it's a, boy, like I said, that's a big can of worms. It opens up all <laughs> kinds of difficulties when you start discussing that in terms of understanding. No, I, I totally understand. I mean, I think it, especially in the current point in time with the kind of lack of compelling data for it and the increasing costs, I feel like it sometimes make a bit of it hard to really push for that. Yeah. It'd be great to, to sort of reallocate some of the resources, you know, and, and, and it's hard sometimes to work with insurance companies because we, we sometimes see them as the enemy or at least you know somebody we have to fight with in order to do what we want. But, but the hard part is getting the data back from these from systems. So a lot of you know, these private practices in the community that don't have the research infrastructure, they're not designed for that. They're not, their goal isn't to do research. But they end up using a lot of this technology and generating the volume from this technology. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to try and get some of that redirected into the research facilities like you know, a Penn State Health that yeah. has research capabilities to really collect the data. I think we would collect the data a lot faster. Absolutely. Uh, than just if we were doing it under under defined research circumstances with these kind of tools, as opposed to just spreading it across the community, doing a ton of cases, and then retrospectively going back and say, oh my goodness, now we're seeing all these failures. This was a problem. You know, it's, it's not a real efficient way to advance the technology. Again, it comes down to money and research dollars, and everybody's yeah. competing for those, so it's hard. They're hard to come by. Yeah, it's definitely definitely a challenge to kind of push through and kind of get those all set up in the places where they need to be. But I agree. I mean, if you have it at a large institution, you're going to be able to get a lot more data a lot quicker and maybe actually see if there's something there we can use from that. I guess uh, kind of moving towards the end here is as patients come in, I know that as time has gone on, as more and more people hear about this, more and more people kind of come in and asking, hey, you know, do you do robots and so on and so forth? Uh, Have you encountered this and do you feel that there is any time in your practice that you may start incorporating doing any robotics at some point? Yeah, I, mean, I certainly have patients ask about robotics, and and they're interested. And I, you know, I try to be open and honest with them. And I have a, I have a couple of partners who are, are exploring the robotics a little more aggressively than I have. Um, I'm still sort of waiting for better data uh, to come back uh, before I jump on that bandwagon. But somebody has to collect the data. Sure. Right. My what I'm telling patients now is that robotics, I think, are exciting. I think they are having, going to have a role moving forward in the future. I don't know that we really know what that role is yet in terms of what aspect of the robotics is most helpful, what is not, those sorts of things. And so, so I don't think the robot, you know, simply having a robotic knee means that it's going to go perfectly. Yeah, um, It's a tool like any other tool, and we need to learn how to best use it and how to incorporate that in. And, and we're, in the, we're still in that learning phase as a society with robotics. Yeah. Uh, and so I look at it optimistically. I mean, I'm, I'm ex- watching this excitedly to see, you know, what happens. Is it really going to make us better? 
I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. waiting to see what happens. <laughs> well, time will tell. Uh, I think it's uh, it's an exciting time. You know, there's a lot of new developments and research that has gone into doing robotics and different various forms of instrumentation for patients. So time will kind of give us the indication as to whether or not this is going to become the, the future or more of just a, a short-lived yeah. trend that teaches us something. It's a little bit like predicting the stock market. You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we look back and, you know, we see a new technology that's really great and we think, why didn't we all incorporate that? You know, back when it first started, we should have jumped, we should have been faster with that. But, you know, for every success we have in new technology, you know, we can show you historically, you know, the failures. And there's four or five failures for every success out there. And technology that came along that everybody jumped on thought was great. And then we spent the next 10 years revising and having all kinds of problems related to unforeseen difficulties with the new technology. And so as much as we'd like to move quickly with everything, you know, there are some of us who've been practicing for a number of years who have seen some of these failures, too, who tend to be a little skeptical and just want to make sure that the data supports, you know, is this really the thing to do, you know, waiting for the really good, well-funded studies mm-hmm. to come out that answer these questions for us. And hopefully this is one of those things that will turn into something great. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Well, time will tell. Well, thank you for being here today with us, Dr. Mason. Appreciate you taking the time and uh, chatting with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again. Well, thank you all for listening. We will uh, see you next time on Ortho Radio. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at orthoradio.nick at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.